0: Why are you laughing? I was going through this in a local coffee establishment, nervous in particular about this today, and in my nervousness, I looked over, and there were two recognizable faces who said, are you getting ready to teach, Pastor Len? And I said, yeah. And they said, can we pray for you right here? And I said, no. No, I didn't. It was just great. Standing in Starbucks with these two dear ladies praying with me, for me, as I'm ready to come over here. That was just so cool. So, yeah, I'm a little extra fired up. Father, I want to be fired up for the right reasons. This truth that you've shown me all throughout this last week. It's amazing. Holy Spirit, pull it through me. Pour it into hearts. Amaze souls with this truth. All right. Uh, yeah, I'm Len, and I continue to enjoy the privilege of serving with Pastor Dennis, as Beth and I plug in anywhere we can in and around Redemption Hill. And it's part of what's been called a special assignment away from our regular lives and ministries in Ecuador, and we're faces behind the line item that you saw up there a few moments ago, and you have no idea how humbling that is. Redemption Hill, thank you. Man, oh man, oh man, thank you. A lot of people on the go. This week, Beth and I head out on a month-long visitation and speaking trek. We go north to Seattle, west into Colorado, then further north up into Canada. Ah, come on if you don't mean it, don't even try. (laughs) Uh, The plan is to be back among you uh, by the end of May for another five months. And I'm going to jump right into our study in the book of Luke, although I feel like I need to quickly jump ahead to one of the verses from next week, because I think that'll give a clearer picture of what was going on where we'll focus today. Now, I have a very active and a very creative imagination. So a lot of my Bible study time is spent with my eyes closed trying to picture what certain stories might have looked like. And I got to tell you, imagining this scene in Luke has been surreal over the past week as we have read countless reports and messages in the aftermath of earthquakes in our adopted home of Ecuador and seeing a wide variety of images of so many people in in scenes of intense distress and agony, along with the chaos that you see when those aid trucks roll in, brings some new life to what Luke reported here. He said all those who had any, who were sick with various diseases, brought them to Jesus. And he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them now I feel as though I need to mention something that often gets overlooked Jesus was doing that in northern Israel which means there were places he was not which means there was places he was not healing people and people were even dying in other places I'm going to come back to that thought because I believe it is crucial to consider in light of this portion, but I don't want to minimize the miracle-driven chaos in this scene, and I just invite you to try to picture it. Think about what it might be like if something similar happened today. I mean, don't think about some huckster, some scam artist, some phony faith healer. This was written by a doctor who put his credibility and his career on the line by writing it. And actually, after all the investigation and all the research Luke did, by the time he wrote this, he was putting his life on the line by saying he believed it. So it seems pretty clear, although he may have begun this project as at least a bit of a skeptic, Luke ended up convinced everything he wrote about Jesus was legit. So again, try to imagine all those who had any. Who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus. And he laid his hands on every one of them and he healed them. And when you really think about what that would have been like, it is not surprising to read a report about Jesus went out through all the surrounding country. That referred to Galilee, that northern part of Israel, and Jesus was beginning a period of about a year and a half focused in that area. I mean, I stink at math, but I did a little calculating, and it seems like Galilee was about the size of the greater L.A. area, despite the terrain and the fact that it was 2,000 years before Facebook and text messages, news about what Jesus was doing just spread like crazy. And one version of the Bible has the last part of verse 14, the fame of him went out through the whole country. And Luke added, Jesus taught in their synagogues being glorified or praised in other Bibles by all. That's at the start of the portion I was given for today. And as they say, spoiler alert, Look at how radically things changed before the end of today's portion. I mean, we're talking just 14 verses later. They rose up and drove Jesus out of the town, and they believe that's the very spot. They brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. what, What could have happened to cause such a dramatic change and in such a short time? How could people see the same person so differently? And I mean, that question is just as valid today. How could so many people see Jesus so differently? Let's take a look at this story and see if we can find some answers in it. Verse 16 has Jesus arriving in Nazareth where he grew up and one history website called nazareth a nondescript dot on the map with not much to offer anybody from a place like that <laughs> those of us from the canadian prairies would beg to differ Some historians say about 200 people lived there at the time. Some say it was more like 2,000. Either way, we know there were at least 10 mature Jewish men among them. That's what it took to have a synagogue in town. And this was Jesus' first time home in quite a while, although after getting glimpses of his parents' faith earlier here in Luke's report, we can be almost certain he went to the synagogue regularly when he was growing up. And here in his early 30s, Luke reported, as was Jesus' custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, synagogues were the center of Jewish life, especially on the Sabbath. From sundown Friday evening until the third star was seen in the sky on Saturday evening. And at the center of the Sabbath ceremony was the reading of the Torah, the honored law of Moses, and the haftarah, the cherished words of their prophets. And there was singing, and there was a lesson, and there was prayer with more from the law and more from the prophets. Now, each synagogue had an identified leader who would often assign parts of the Sabbath to a variety of people. And the Sabbath ceremony almost always went on for hours. So in hundreds of synagogues across Israel and beyond, Sabbath after Sabbath, year after year, the Jews came, and more than anything else, They heard, they sang, and they prayed about the Messiah, Savior. The one they believed would come and set them free, this time from Roman rule, and make Israel the world power. Many Jews around the world are still waiting for him. After all the research and all the interviews Luke did, I think he would be between... Amazed and brokenhearted, the Jews of all people would deny unprecedented evidence that shows Jesus was who he claimed to be. And even though he was not a Jew, as he wrote this report, I get a sense Luke couldn't wait to show he had become convinced Jesus was and as a result is the Messiah Savior, but not only for Jews. Now, last week, Pastor Dennis painted a powerful picture of Satan's temptation of Jesus in the desert. And that started about a year of ministry in southern Israel, in Judea. John's biography of Jesus spent a lot of time showing what happened in Judea, but Luke jumped right over that whole year. He went from the temptation of Jesus to a year later. As Jesus moved north, and his popularity was skyrocketing, and that's likely why the synagogue leader in Jesus' hometown gave him the place of honor, of reading from the prophets in that Sabbath celebration. Jesus, it says, was handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he turned to well-known and beloved words. Words spoken to Isaiah 800 years earlier from the Messiah Savior. And the Jews had longed for him to come and bring the predicted, the prophetic words to life. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And for centuries, the Jews had held tightly to the promise of the one who would come and fulfill those words. And I suspect those words took on new life as Israel's hottest celebrity read them. Man, that little synagogue in that little town would have been just bursting with excitement. In verse 22 here in chapter 4, while most English Bibles seem to show how amazed the people were about what Jesus said, the digging I did led me to believe they were likely more impressed by how Jesus spoke. Most of them had likely heard lines like those, read countless times over the years. And That Sabbath, they were uniquely stirred by something in the way Jesus spoke them. Matthew, Mark, and John also reported on different times, people were astonished by the intensity and the passion and the authority when Jesus spoke. And Jesus was repeating words that mattered to the Jews as much as any words could. But he was saying them in a way that stirred something extra among them and inside them. And Luke continued his report. Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Just think about that. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Him, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, based on my experience in small towns and knowing the immeasurable scandal it would have been back then, I doubt Jesus ever shook the kind of label that would come when your parents. Had you before they were married. Yet Jesus had grown up among them. God in the form of a baby, and then a toddler, and then a kindergartner, and then a middle junior high schooler, then a young adult. But because he never stopped being God, he would have been perfect at every phase. Yet I suspect the people of Nazareth never saw him that way. Or they always came up with some way to explain their way around his perfection. It just seems to me Jesus had never been able to shake the ridicule and the scorn and that seemed to be behind what they pointed out in this scene even though there likely had been at least extreme curiosity about the news of what Jesus had been doing recently, I kind of imagine this collective sneer with a a mixture of mockery and maybe even disgust behind the question. Uh, Is this not Joseph's son? Seems to me years of gossip and whispers and finger-pointing were behind that. His parents weren't married when they had him. And and then they tried to cover it with a story that God got his mom pregnant. Yeah, that'll go over big in a small town. And even though Jesus left home and had headed south for at least a year, pretty much everyone would have known. (laughs) Of course it was Joseph's son. And they would have known all that was behind that. But as Luke reported, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. Now, if this were a weekly TV series, that would be a great place to freeze the screen and roll the closing credits and invite you back next week. We don't know how long that moment lasted. And no one in our culture can comprehend how much of a bombshell Jesus' next words would have been. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Hometown boy from a nothing little town. Uneducated or at best undereducated. Illegitimate son of a poor blue-collar worker claiming to be the Messiah Savior. Now, we don't know exactly how it went down in this scene or beyond it as the people began to clue into what he was really saying. But eventually they did, and most just didn't like it. And even though history has given people all around the world 2,000 years to think and learn about him, most still don't like his claim to be the Messiah Savior. Now, I mentioned history. In this scene, Jesus quickly began to bring up a few awkward and painful stories from their history. They feature two of the most famous prophets of Israel who lived centuries earlier. first one was Elijah. Jesus reminded the folks in Nazareth there were many Jewish widows in Elijah's days thanks in large part to wars and to an extended drought. The worship of the small G-god Baal was pretty much everywhere and had become a deep part of the culture, even the Jewish culture. Ahab was the king of Israel, but had married the Gentile Jezebel, a very serious Baal worshiper. So Ahab became one too. And Ahab, as we read, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It was a really grim time in the history of the Jews. And even though 900 years had passed, Jews at the time of Jesus knew all about it, although most would not admit they were headed in the same direction and in some ways were there already. The condition of Jewish widows was a graphic picture of how brutal things were in Elijah's time. But Jesus reminded the Jews in Nazareth, Elijah was sent to none of the Jews, but only to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Now, the more I studied and thought about what Jesus was saying and where he was saying it, the more I picture the Jews collectively just kind of gasping in shock Elijah was not sent to a Jew, but to one widow in a very non Jewish place. I mean, Sidon was Jezebel's father's hometown. Jezebel's father was so devoted to the small g gods, he was named after one of the main ones, Ethbaal. And Ethbaal basically killed his way to the top to become a king. And he also named himself head priest, which made him more hideous in the eyes of the Jews than we could ever imagine. So Jesus was shining this light on one of the darkest and most puzzling corners of Jewish history. Out of all the people he could have helped, Elijah, sent by God, went to one of the nastiest places a Jew could imagine to rescue a Gentile widow. And as the story continued, Elijah stretched himself out over her dead son and brought him back to life. And coming that close to a corpse would have been as appalling in the eyes of the Jews as anything he could have done. And he was doing it in a place most Jews would have never even thought of going in their worst nightmare. But the Gentile widow was miraculously fed and the dead son was brought back to life. And the Bible contains the words of this Gentile widow in the heart of pagan land confessing, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Why would Jesus have brought up that extremely awkward story? He didn't give him much time to get upset because he followed with another really heavy story. He said, Oh, by the way, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. See, Elisha followed Elijah during a time in history when diseases were really common. The word for leprosy was this general term for different kinds of skin diseases, although under Jewish law, any diagnosis of leprosy would have left people labeled unclean, unclean, cut off from all social activities, no contact with anyone, not even their closest family members. And the subject in this story was Naaman, a high-ranking soldier. His Forces, His soldiers carried out raids on the Jews and they would cross into Jewish territory and they would fight and they would usually win and they would take prisoners and they would take possessions back into Syria. Does that sound at all familiar? And Naaman was despised by the Jews and he had leprosy. He was as despicable as anyone could be in the eyes of the Jews. Yeah, well, except for one. This Jewish girl who had been taken captive during one of the raids mentioned to him, she was sure this Elisha could heal him. And we don't have time for the story, but what connects with today's study is how the emotions at the Nazareth synagogue would have been stirred by the memory that Elisha had healed Naaman. What they would have considered the scummiest of the scum. And not a single Jew was healed. And Naaman, of all people, Confess, now I know that there is no God in all the world except the one they know in Israel. 900 years later, in Nazareth, Luke reported, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and not only that, they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. I mean, These were faithful Jews in a synagogue where they went religiously. And just as religiously they followed all the ceremonies and all the feasts and they worshipped God and they knew the Scriptures and they sang the right songs and they tithed. Does that sound familiar? Now they were circumcised. They were descendants of Abraham, and, and, and this illegitimate or uneducated son of a carpenter was saying God loved a scumbag Syrian leper who made part of his living stealing from, abusing, and even killing their ancestors. And this illegitimate illegitimate son of a carpenter said, God reached down to and loved a hardcore pagan woman and had one of his prophets doubly defile himself by touching a dead Gentile. And Jesus was making the Jews face an additional awkward fact. God reached past their ancestors to heal those three. Just in case you missed this, we are modern versions of the scumbag Syrian leper. In this story, we're the hardcore pagan woman. We're the dead Gentile. So Jesus was telling The Jews in Nazareth, the promise of the Messiah Savior was not about who they were. It was not about what they did. Let me bring that statement to today. The promise of the Messiah Savior is not about who you are. It's not about what you do. And don't rush past that the promise of the Messiah Savior is not about who you are. It's not about what you do. Now go back to verse 20, when the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. And I want to pause for just a a moment or two While we cannot fix our eyes on Jesus, I invite or I challenge you to take a moment and fix your thoughts on Jesus. And and I want you to think about what you really think about Jesus. And from that, and I found this to be even more important Think about what you really think Jesus really thinks about you. Think about what you really think about Jesus. And think about what you really think Jesus really thinks about you. See, I believe most of us have gone through are going through or will go through stretches where we're tempted to believe God will really love some future version of us. I I mean, we may believe Jesus saved us, but we kind of think he didn't really want to. I mean, he really only did it because he has to because after all he is the Messiah Savior and we're tempted to think he's just kind of putting up with us until we really get our acts together. Or we don't think he really cares about us that much if he thinks about us at all. Now, at the other extreme, we can get subtly arrogant and we can think, well, if Jesus would just, you know, fill in the blank then I would be able to think more of Him, or think about Him more. You know, what I think about Jesus would be different if He would just, you know, fill in your blank. You ever had those kind of thoughts? If Jesus would just dot, 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 then I would dot, dot, dot. Well, that's what Jesus dealt with in this next scene. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown. That line, physician, heal thyself, came from the rabbi's special manual, the Talmud. And Jesus added a line that brought it close to home for the Jews. And he was pointing ahead to when the excitement about all the news, about all the miracles would fade. And one by one, each Jew and ultimately everyone would say, yeah, I've seen, I've heard about the miracles. I've heard or I've read the amazing teaching. But if you expect me to believe you are the Messiah Savior, you better do something that will convince me as exciting and as amazing as stories from history may be what we all inherited from Adam and Eve can make us all very prone to ask nice stories but what about me what about this thing I'm up against I I see the stories I read the stories but but what about me What about this thing that I'm up against? I was meditating on this on Wednesday. I don't like doing this. And suddenly it was as though God was tenderly yet firmly saying to me, because of the self-centeredness that exploded into the Garden of Eden and you inherited, Len, sometimes your problem is not that I haven't done enough. Sometimes your problem is that you don't think I've done enough for you. Or that I haven't done that one particular thing for you. I'm glad I can see a couple of heads nodding. Because it can feel really lonely up here sometimes when you say stuff like this. I mean, history is packed with reasons for us to sing, How Great He Art. But I believe we can be tempted to hesitate to really belt that out if or when we're thinking of an area in our lives we don't think he's been particularly great. (laughs) Beyond that, this scene underlines something Jesus eventually made very clear. The Messiah Savior does not ultimately do what most people think he does. I mean for example if you look closely at the first four books in the New Testament you'll see there are all kinds of people who did not get miraculously healed. <laughs> Beyond that even if someone is miraculously healed 50 times he or she will eventually still die. I mean just let that soak in for a moment. Even if someone is healed 50 times, he or she will eventually still die. Then what? (laughs) Well, the Jews in the synagogue would have believed they had the answer. Then what? Well, that's easy. Heaven. Well, subtly and not so subtly, Jesus pressed them with follow-up questions. How will you get in? Why? Well, the people in the synagogue would have believed they had... The answers to that, too. Well, because we're Jews. We're descendants of Abraham. And we do our best to live the right way, or at least we live better than them, or we're better than we used to be. Subtly and not so subtly, Jesus began saying, Wrong. And that's what turned a sweet Sabbath ceremony into a rage-driven lynch mob. No Bible writer tells us how Jesus got away from them apart from the Holy Spirit doing his thing. Luke just wrote, passing through their midst, he went away. (laughs) Anybody else want details? (laughs) As he went... Jesus spent the rest of his life saying more things that challenged the core of the Jewish faith, the core of any faith, really. What it means to be lost, who is and who isn't lost, and how you get found, how you get rescued, how you get saved. Jesus said... And pay attention to his repeated use of one seemingly simple, small word. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And that little definite article can get you in as much trouble as anything today. Most people don't seem to mind if you say Jesus is a way. But things often change drastically if you switch that to the way. There's no way getting around how bluntly and how often Jesus said, as amazing as any other miracle may be, eternal salvation by grace through faith in me is the miracle of all miracles. But the catch is, Even if all his other miracles were legit, and Luke was convinced they were, and even if people throughout history have done similar miracles in his name, to put it bluntly, none of them prove Jesus can save a soul for eternity. Which brings us to the most profound depth of what faith in Jesus really is. I mean, faith can be about whether God can or will bring a new job, a new friend, a spouse. Faith can be about whether a tumor will shrink or disappear. Faith can be about any of hundreds of things on a list we could make that we would say take faith to believe. But in that Nazareth synagogue, Jesus began challenging the core of faith. Is eternity real. And if it is, where will you spend it? And how do you know? And where we are in Luke's report of his investigation into those questions, Jesus was starting to say something that echoes through the centuries. Do you really believe you really need the Messiah Savior and he is Jesus? Or for some, do you really believe you know Jesus? And when was the last time you simply stood still with your thoughts fixed on him? John and the other choir leaders have a really powerful musical confession and proclamation to lead you through with that in mind. Pray as they come. Father, even being up here further confirms to me that this is truth, this is good truth, but this is hard truth. Holy Spirit, I want to thank you for the seemingly small things like nudging John to select a song that can be such an exclamation mark if we choose to let it. It's often said we need to preach the gospel back to ourselves Often. We can do that with this song. Holy Spirit, continue to lead us as we worship Him, the Savior. Amen.